I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers' credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with returning guest Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy about his new podcast documentary series, How Israel Made APAC. For those who don't know, APAC is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. It has been in the news lately and is often simply referred to as the Israel Lobby. It's a story that involves a number of figures and events, including lobbyist Isaiah Kennan, arms smuggling, leaking of secret documents, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and how Israel obtained the secrets of nuclear weaponry. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy, about his new documentary series, How Israel Made APAC. Welcome back to Parallax Views, the guest that I always enjoy having on the show. I've uh, had the opportunity to speak with him in person uh, during an event in D.C. this past year. Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy. And Grant has a new podcast uh, called How Israel Made APAC. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. How are you doing, Grant? Hey, doing well, JG. Doing well. Good to see you again. So, Grant, maybe if you could, uh, with this new podcast, How Israel Made APAC, what was the impetus uh, for creating this podcast? Yeah, so APAC is in the news right now a lot because it's been, through its new political action committee entities, knocking off a lot of progressive candidates in primaries with primarily GOP money. And so... There's a lot of establishment, legacy, and sort of new media takes, hot takes on what all this means. And all of them have a single thing in common. None of them discuss, A, what APAC is, and B, 
where it came from. And because uh, IRMEP has been involved in a lot of FOIA and other uh, review of that question, I decided, and also at the impetus of a historian and uh, the head of the American Council for Judaism of all places, decided to take a lot of that information and put it into a digestible 13 series podcast or 13 episode podcast series uh, so that uh, people can get the answers to those two questions. Yeah, I was going to say you've already got some great praise. I think you mentioned uh, Alan C. Brownfeld of the American Council for Judaism uh, has praised uh, the podcast. And also, I was surprised to see uh, Jim Douglas, author of JFK and the Unspeakable. He had this to say about how Israel made APAC. In our media filled with war, chaos, and propaganda, Grant F. Smith's podcast is the real thing. Illumination of a critical issue by a superb investigative journalist. Thanks to Smith's brilliant mining of the declassified documents of Isaiah L. Kennan and his Zionist lobby collaborators, the truth can indeed set us free. I guess where we should start with this is who is Isaiah L. Kennan? Yeah, so Isaiah L. Kennan is the founder of APAC, and he was born in Canada, uh, came up, raised uh, by a very hardcore Zionist family. His father knew Theodore Herzl, who, of course, wrote uh, The Jewish State. They were all uh, celebratory of the Balfour Declaration. And he gradually, upon becoming a newspaper man and moving to Cleveland, became active in lobbying uh, and was so successful in lobbying Congress that he was noticed by some of the major uh, Zionist leadership in the U.S. who were uh, interested in creating a Jewish state in Palestine, like Louis Lipsky and others. And they said, hey, we got to get this guy involved in lobbying for the creation of Israel. So Isaiah Kennan uh, wrote two books. One of them was called Israel's Defense Line, in which he tells all about his experiences as a lobbyist for Israel and his uh, dealings with the Israeli government. Uh, so it's very important, but we combine that with some documents from a giant trove from the Justice Department, National Security Division, or excuse me, the uh, uh, the uh, FARA Division, Foreign Agents Registration Act Division, that we got in 2008 to say, here's the real story of how APAC came into being. And so we've answered a question. If you, if you plumb APAC's website looking for information about where it came from, you know, for the longest time, they simply said, oh, APAC just emerged from a boutique of, you know, interest group, uh, lobbying uh, organizations. Canon yeah, isn't really mentioned uh, that much by APAC. Um, yeah. Although I, yeah. I think maybe once or twice you can see his name on the website, but you know. yeah, he's he's there, but he's you know he's I would say he's not he's not given the recognition he deserves, and the backstory is murky even on APAC's own site, and there there are reasons for that. Could you set the scene for us? Like, how does this figure of Isaiah Kennan come about? Maybe talk about his background and what was going on uh, when he started getting involved in lobbying. Yeah, so his key moment comes um, in uh, the United Nations when he is actually a Jewish agency for Israel official. Now, that's a, uh, an organization that was set up 
way back when, uh, decades before Israel was formed, to kind of execute on Theodore Herzl's vision through voice, pen, and deed, as they called it, in setting up all the conditions to create a state. So he was with the UN uh, Study Commission on Palestine right at the end of World War II. He was visiting the area. He was at the United Nations as the press secretary for the Jewish agency and lobbying along with many others uh, to uh, override the Arab countries and get uh, all the major sort of victors of World War II on board for creating uh, Israel in Palestine. And so the, the moment that's most important in the podcast series is after the state of Israel is formed and Kennan, uh, at the at that time, uh, late 40s, early 50s, is working for the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs as an employee. And he's doing the same thing that he's been doing for the Jewish Agency, which is press and lobbying for aid and doing all of that while simultaneously registering under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of 1938 and somewhat disclosing his activities, his cash flow, and the fact that he's being paid uh, by the Jewish agency still, and the Jewish agency is being paid by the Israeli government. And a lot of, they're getting a lot of international resources and donations, including some from the US that are recirculated. So he's there, he's working on that. And after the first big US aid disbursement, uh, he's in Israel. He's still being paid by the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He's receiving all of the top uh, congressionals, uh, a seller and others who are there in Israel. And he's he's uh, congratulating them on this first uh, aid to Israel. He's, uh, again, being paid by the Israeli government. And he's got to make a decision at that point. He half thought in his biography, he's going to stay there. He's going to be part of the diplomatic corps. He's going to work alongside Abba Ibn, you know, the Israeli diplomat who was uh, representing them at the UN. He was going to be there as an Israeli citizen. But in consultation with the Israeli government, uh, it was decided that he would really be more useful because what they needed more than anything was not just to have a Jewish agency foreign agent uh, registered in New York lobbying for aid. They needed an American lobby for Israel. And so he was essentially dispatched to the United States to set up that lobbying organization. And he did so in an umbrella group called the American Zionist Council. Uh, so the American Zionist Council uh, was an ostensibly American group, but it was still almost entirely subsidized by the Jewish agency. In fact, you know, in 1957 dollars, they receive, you know, over $5 million uh, to uh, lobby Congress. He received funding to set up this newsletter, which is still in existence today, called the Near East Report, sent out to 50,000 recipients, including, you know, the Saturday Evening Post, Time Magazine, and of course, all members of Congress and everybody in who's who in America. I don't even know if that publication's around anymore, but a giant lobbying campaign, which would transmit in American ease what the Israeli government wanted and what their views were 
of Arab countries and Palestinian refugees in particular. So, you know, uh, recipients like J.W. Fulbright in the Senate, you know, the Foreign Relations Committee understood Isaiah Kennan's trajectory. They knew who he was and they felt the pressure and the heat as he was putting together this giant domestic lobby to pressure them for more aid and ever more arms for Israel. He resented it. And together with the Kennedy administration, which of course meant RFK at the Justice Department as Attorney General, uh, got together and there was a dual investigation of the American Zionist Council in general and the American Israel Public Affairs Committee in particular that uh, curiously enough this week uh, involved raids and document seizures from filing cabinets at the Jewish agency. And it was so traumatizing that Isaiah Kennan fled the country for Iran, which was an Israeli ally at the time and pretty much disappeared from the scene while hearings were held in the Senate and while the Department of Justice on uh, November 22, 1962, ordered the American Zionist Council to register as an Israeli foreign agent. So very uh, dramatic proceedings. Um, again, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee was the lobbying division of the American Zionist Council, which also had other umbrella group members such as Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Movement, and the Zionist Organization of America, and a couple of other now defunct groups. It, it sounds like Kennan, in a lot of ways, brought together um, disparate elements of the sort of nascent um, Zionist movement uh, together. Yeah, but but he, he'd also chafe, too. He'd be like, ah, Henrietta Zold thinks I'm a, a interloper, and, you know, ZOA doesn't want me in... Washington, because they've got that covered. So he did. He pulled it together gradually, but there was a lot of contention. And then all the while, the American Council for Judaism and its extremely powerful Sears Roebuck air uh, were uh, lobbying uh, all sorts of suggestions to the Justice Department about why this organization was just the cat's paw of the Israeli government. So, but you're right. He was the one, he was talking to the key funders, he was talking to the Israelis, the Jewish agency officials, the sometimes competing and not always so unified key Zionist organizations to pull together this American lobby. Could you talk a little bit more about, and I want to get uh, more deeply into issues like the the secret documents that were leaked to sort of hurt the Arab cause at the time. Yeah. But before we get into that, what was... I guess what what was the big motivating factors in Isaiah Kennan's life? Like, what's what's the background on the way he thought about the world? What what played into how he perceived things politically and just life in general, whether it was business or politics? Yeah, well, he was a pretty witty guy, and his book is full of quotes. And he talks about as you know when he was a youngster in school. And, you know, heard about the Balfour Declaration. He demanded to make a little speech to the class saying, oh, this is great. At last, you know, the Jewish people will have their own homelands in historic Palestine. Um, he was impressed with his father's international sort of jet setting, trying to set up the sale of Canadian steel 
oil tankers to the czar of Russia to beat down the Bolsheviks and, you know, the uh, Russian Revolution. He was uh, impressed with his dad's little entrepreneurial ventures where he was shuttling people back back and forth across the American border, uh, you know, not too caring of uh, immigration laws. And finally, he was very impressed by the power of the press. He really understood as a Cleveland-based journalist that if you uh, were lobbying and also writing the coverage of that lobbying without disclosing the lobbying, how powerful that could be in shaping American public opinion. He was very much uh, concerned that the U.S. should get into World War II. He was doing all sorts of oppo research on people who opposed it. Right. To- he, he was uh, he famously talked about, like, we have to isolate the isolationists. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Isolate the isolationist. So he was, you know, he really understood media. He understood law. He was a trained lawyer, although he never practiced law. Uh, And he understood that sitting around protesting and holding signs was not the way to go. His mentor, Abraham Feinberg, who has been interviewed or was interviewed before he died for the Truman Library, said, you know, the essence of what you want to get done in Washington is to provide politicians with what they need. And what they need, of course, are campaign contributions. So Kennan understood that. He understood that if they could build a lobby that was powerful enough to uh, fund politicians' aspirations for office, that they could basically do anything they wanted. I was going to say real quick, too, um, in your podcast, there was a figure that was... um involved, I guess, with the Pendergast machine. The, uh, the For people that don't know, Thomas Pendergast was a, an American political boss who basically controlled uh, Kansas City. And um, yeah, I, I just found it interesting. How does Pendergast figure into the story? Yeah, so boss Pendergast was really uh, a big influence on Harry S. Truman. So the Pendergast machine was uh, all about um, – financing and uh, making sure that public works contracts in Missouri uh, tapped his cement company interests. And Truman was a big beneficiary of that. He was nicknamed the senator from Pendergast when he was uh, in Congress. And basically, you know, he was under constant pressure to make sure that the ready mix contracts made it to Pendergast on time. So, you know, he was very, he was publicly known as being an extremely Truman, an extremely uh, pliable senator and uh, what they found Potent- out later. Potentially corruptible, in other Potent- words. Yeah, potentially. He was, he, he couldn't be bought, but he could be rented. So, you know, he, he's important because he was, of course, the one the president who, under pressure from a lot of uh, high-profile Zionists, um, recognized Israel over the objections of the State Department and the more appropriately named War Department in 1948. He did not consult or listen to their concerns. And basically, although he made some modifications, and Kennan even applies, implies that he wrote the draft letter of recognition of Israel, he 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 pretty much implies that he wrote it, and then Truman altered some of the words to kind of water it down a little bit. But you know, subsequently, the the story is, and it's a true story. Feinberg organized 
financing for Truman's election campaign. You know, of course, he became president with the death of Roosevelt. He had to get elected. And they arranged this very um, well-financed whistle-stop tour uh, for Truman to get enough popular support to be elected president. And, you know, we all remember that uh, newspaper being held up by Truman, which says Dewey beats Truman. I really think, uh, and based on what I've read, I think he probably would have lost absent the financial support of Abraham Feinberg, who, you know, was a huge factor in Democratic uh, funding, every bit as important as Sheldon Adelson became to Republicans. Uh, Abraham Feinberg, who was kind of a uh, clothier and manufacturer of uh, clo- women's clothing, uh, later became owner of Israel's Coca-Cola bal- bottling factory. You know, he was an extremely important financier of Democratic Party politics all the way through LBJ. And so, you know, it, very important, I think, that these uh, these men, Truman and LBJ, were definitely could be rented for the right price. Another aspect of this that I find really interesting is uh, these secret documents uh, that, that got leaked uh, that were sort of meant to um, attack the, the Arab cause at the time. Could you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, we're talking about the Mufti. And the story is that the... Uh, Palestinian Mufti of Jerusalem, um, it was disclosed, had, um, you know, ties with the Nazis. He was in communication with the Nazis during World War II. And basically some of the material that came out on the Mufti of Jerusalem during the Nuremberg process uh, made its way into the hands of the Zionist lobbies and they quickly leaked all of this information so that they could portray the Arab cause as being you know, a little better than the Nazis. In particular, they leaked it to The Nation magazine, which was eager for scoops. Um, and so, you know, when this came out during the whole process and debate in the United Nations for whether or not to, you know, have this... Uh, uh, partition for uh, Palestine become, you know, a state for Arabs and a state for for um, Jews, displaced person. It caused a real trauma on the Arab side because they clumsily tried to refute all of this, but of course it was true, and it basically so harmed their cause that the General Assembly. You know, they couldn't communicate, they couldn't coordinate. And so the General Assembly passed the partition plan in 1947. And at that point, they pretty much lost. Um, Truman in his diaries was outraged by this leak. You know, this stuff was supposed to be in the hands of, if not the allies, the U.S. side, and it was leaked. And he was outraged by that. And he really criticized the leakers. But this kind of became, you know, it it was considered a great tactic for the Israel lobby. And they've subsequently done it over and over and over again uh, to embarrass U.S. administrations and present a one sided sort of uh, portrayal of of what was going on. So I, you know, APAC uh, 
in the early 70s, leaked all sorts of information about a proposed U.S. missile sale to Jordan. Um, and again, it had this great effect of completely presenting one side and generating controversy against what was basically a Cold War balancing exercise on the side of the U.S. Then you have Rosen and Weissman leaking Pentagon information, trying to get a Washington Post reporter to report that basically uh, Iran was attacking the U.S. in Iraq during that invasion and occupation. So this quickly became kind of an Israel lobby forte, get classified information or get closely held information and leak it uh, for the benefit of Israel. I was going to say, too, it, it's interesting because I think even in the podcast, you talk a little bit about so there's this information leaked about the Grand Mufti and and and, you know, like the Third Reich. But there's also information out there about the Stern gang and and things like what Edwin Black writes about uh, the, the, transfer the transfer agreement that right. we don't really learn about for many years. No, it certainly didn't come out as a as a piece of balancing information uh, before the U.N. vote uh, when it would have mattered. Uh, it didn't come out that a lobbying group uh, under the uh, auspices of Peter Bergson, which was pressuring Truman and a lot of settlers or senators for a Jewish army in Palestine early on, that they were simultaneously lobbying the Nazis in the 1930s for the same thing. They were basically saying at the time, you know, we don't know who's going to win um, and didn't really uh, have any problems with simultaneously pursuing funding and political support for a Jewish army in Palestine from both the Nazis and the United States at the very same time. None of this stuff uh, ever broke when it could have provided perspective into uh, what was really going on at the time. And to a certain extent, the, you know, the situation that I've seen in the last 20 years of doing this research, nothing has changed. <laughs> Nothing's changed. So let's get into where does the issues that the the state and war departments have uh, with U.S. recognition of Israel, where does that all start? Well, a lot of it had to do with the historic uh, meeting between uh, King Ibn Saud and Roosevelt on the deck of a U.S. warship where they were, you know, setting up uh, a U.S. relationship with the Saudis for security in exchange for oil uh, promises by U.S. diplomats that nothing would be done on Palestine, which would, quote, prejudice uh, Arab interests and Palestinian interests. And, you know, even the Balfour Declaration, to a certain extent, promises that. So um, the U.S. did, in fact, make some commitments to its uh, Arab allies uh, not to uh, just utterly trample uh, all of the rights of the indigenous populations in Palestine during this crucial period of, you know, setting up something uh, that would would take over British the British mandate uh, in Palestine. But you know, as it turns out, all of that uh, would be uh, utterly discarded. And to the extent that State Department officials were saying, you know, we really don't have a policy. We just have this ad hoc series of proclamations issued by the president, as they say, from time to time. So, you know, 
everything was put into uh, operation and motion on the basis of Truman's calculation and high awareness of the value of the uh, Jewish vote in key U.S. states and the comparative non-Palestinian <laughs> or Arab vote in any key state. And Abraham Feinberg hammered that home uh, when he was talking to Adlai Stevenson before his run, when he was considering making a run for president, you know, former vice president. And Feinberg said, you know, it's it's great that you did all of these things and made all these commitments with Arabs and their governments uh, in your course of diplomacy. And it's great you talk to them man to man, but you should also be aware that uh, you should be talking to the Israelis and the uh, Jewish Zionist leaders in the United States man to man as well. He just, you know, they were continually reminded that if they wanted to access a trove of pro-Israel campaign contributions, which were mostly cash, mostly non-reported, uh, that they would have to consider that. And to the same extent that uh, APAC, through its new instruments, political action committees, is able to successfully primary uh, candidates in today's uh, political races, uh, they were constantly reminding politicians and, of course, the president that that was a factor. So, you know, in the podcast, we get into a little bit more about uh, LBJ's crisis when he had about a half a million dollars of Feinberg's cash in his safe that had to be moved during uh, a key moment. And uh, I, I just think it's really worthwhile to think about Donna Edwards and uh, the Truman Whistle Stop campaign. Uh, if you look at it, APEC uh, spent about the same amount to knock off Donna Edwards as they paid in current dollars to install Truman as president of the United States. And so, you know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a recent phenomenon that this money has a key impact on U.S. politics going forward. It's been around a long, long time. If we could backtrack for a second, I had mentioned things like the Stern Gang and the transfer agreement. For people that are unfamiliar, um, with that, with the sort of Israeli pre-state arms smuggling entities and whatnot. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that um, for people that are unfamiliar? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'll go back to Bergson and Ergens Um, These were paramilitary organizations that uh, opposed the British white paper, which said uh, in the 30s and 40s that you couldn't uh, bring any more uh, Jewish refugees or Jewish uh, colonists to Palestine. And basically, they went to war with the Brits when they still had their colonial mandate over Palestine. You know, not to say that the Brits were this beneficent force uh, in the mandate, they were brutal, uh, brutal occupiers who found in many cases with their black and tan regiments that were constantly beating, shooting and just terrorizing Palestinian population. They did that oftentimes in alliance with militant uh, Zionist organizations. But, you know, pretty soon the uh, Ergun and Stern gangs were uh, 
launching terrorist campaigns and using milk can bombs in marketplaces to cause terror in the interest of driving the Brits out of Palestine so they could just uh, take it take it over. So Jabotinsky, Vladimir Jabotinsky was a big um, Jewish army advocate. Uh, he f- had a lot of fans in the U.S. Department of Treasury. Um, he was training uh, little fascist squads of brown shirts and the Italian mode uh, of being to take over. And he was very much opposed to sort of the more staid and gradualist approach of the world Zionist organization. And so, yeah, you know, J- he- Jabotinsky has had a big influence throughout the years just on the, um, the sort of right wing Likud party within Israel, right. right? Exactly. Exactly. So he was, you know, he was very, he was not very circumspect. He was basically saying, we've got to wipe out uh, you know, the Palestinians drive them out. They consider this their home. We do as well. Very active in, you know, terrorist bombing campaigns. Um, and so Jawotinsky was uh, roaming all over the place, organizing. He had a paramilitary training camp in the Catskills in New York. Uh, Treasury Department allies were helping him move around and communicate. Um, at this point, uh, it, it's interesting that the U.S. Treasury Secretary was very critical of the State Department and basically facilitating uh, and really uh, lobbying the president for uh, the allowance of more Jewish displaced persons to come to the U.S. and and be sent to other countries to get them out of harm's way. So there's a lot of competition over foreign policy from the Treasury Department, which, again, is kind of a precursor to today where you have the Office of Financial Intelligence, which is very active in foreign policy and implementing sanctions and economic warfare against Israel's enemies, uh, and which was set up uh, with a lot of APAC lobbying. So, you know, it's there's a lot going on in this period of time, which is both uh, kind of above board, you know, lobbying, creating United Nations groups, but also a lot of arms smuggling. That, that's of, through uh, Haganah, right? Uh, Haganah, yeah, Americans for Haganah. Abraham Feinberg, this big Democratic Party financier, was involved in that. The Jewish Agency was involved in setting that up. The executive of the Jewish Agency came to the United States for a meeting with key Zionist leaders. Uh, and basically that was David Ben-Gurion. He set up, uh, with their help, a vast archipelago of arms smuggling entities like MarTech and Materials of Manstein for Palestine and the Sonnenbohr Institute, all of which were funneling surplus World War II uh, armaments bought as scrap into Palestine via Latin America, uh, via Czechoslovakia. These included, you know, bombers and machine guns, 50 caliber, 30 pack caliber machine guns, aircraft engines, just a, a vast tonnage of material. Um, and, you know, the FBI became aware of it. And they even met with some of the smugglers who said, you know, this is not above board, but they were very brazen. They're just, they understood that they had the political cover in Washington 
And in the end, only a very small number were ever prosecuted, like Hank Greenspun out in Las Vegas, who ran the Las Vegas Sun newspaper for a long time. And Charles Winters, who was uh, running a fruit transport company in the Caribbean using uh, bombers converted for transport, but who sold them and they became bombers for the Israeli Air Force. Uh, all of these figures were later pardoned with presidential pardons under intense lobbying by different Israel lobbying groups. And so they kind of wiped the record clean on all of that. But there were never very many prosecutions of Neutrality Act violations because and, and I think this is true uh, when it, when we go into the nuclear smuggling aspect, which we probably don't have time for. It's, you know, when you have a president in your pocket, when you help that president get into office when he could not have gotten into office, you can be fairly certain that there aren't going to be a lot of Neutrality Act prosecutions when some of your boys get caught. And in Abraham Feinberg's FBI file, uh, there's a very present little quote in there where he was putting together a war chest when a bunch of smuggling operatives got caught and indicted in Florida. And there isn't too much more to that story other than that you see the prosecution of over 100 smugglers quietly get dropped and lead to nowhere after they've been picked up by the FBI, which, by the way, you know, had photos of the bombers and the aircraft engines and the machine guns. I mean, they had the smugglers cold. But hey, what's the Neutrality Act when your president's been bought and paid for by the lobby? Real quick, I know you said we're probably not going to have time to get deep into it, but this issue of Israel and nuclear weapons and um, how they got those weapons, um, give us the like sort of broad overview of that. Yeah, so the broad overview of that is very early on, uh, the Israelis were very interested in uh, having their own atomic weapons. And this was really an initiative that required uh, a smuggling network, just like the Haganah uh, put together. And so they, uh, under the uh, auspices of various Atoms for Peace uh, initiatives of the Eisenhower administration, quickly started lobbying so that Israel could get its own nuclear reactor. Um, they were, you know, working with the French to build a what they said was going to be a research reactor uh, at Dimona, and uh, they had uh, a group of Zionist Organization of America officials and a brilliant scientist by the name of Zalman Shapiro out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, put together a contractor for the Navy to produce Navy fuel rods for the nuclear submarines uh, in a little uh, town east of Pittsburgh called Apollo, Pennsylvania. Uh, they bought an old steel plant called Raycord Steel, and they started receiving huge shipments of weapons-grade, highly enriched uranium to put into the shape of pellets for the Navy's submarines. Well, uh, a lot of that material went missing. You had the visit of top Israeli spies uh, at the plants uh, who were curiously there when huge quantities were disappearing. 
Uh, you had the CIA station chief, John Haddon, picking up samples of this very rare, very highly enriched uranium outside of Demona, and the CIA quickly concluding that uh, the Israelis and their friends in the U.S. were diverting it for the production of atomic weapons you know, by the mid and late 1960s. Um, when he was approached with this information, LBJ simply said, I don't want to hear about this stuff anymore. Uh, again, Truman would have said the same. Um, they had already made their decisions. So um, we obtained uh, quite a few CIA and other documents uh, about- Through like Act. FOIA requests or- No, yeah. we had to go to court. Uh, oh. We had a very uh, long and tempestuous fight with the CIA. They would have six lawyers at a table. I, who am not a lawyer, would be at the other table. And a new judge who hadn't quite learned the ropes of Washington was very critical of them because some of this stuff wasn't even classified and they're hanging on to it. Uh, we got a 1987 report from the Department of Defense that basically said, yeah, the Israelis have taken all the atoms for peace infrastructure we gave them and created many national laboratories. They're working on codes, which will help them build hydrogen bombs. Uh, it didn't say anything about NUMAC, but... You know, this is something the U.S. government has known about for a long time, but there are various rules, administrative rules, uh, for why they won't talk about Israel's nuclear weapons. Um, so, it, you know, John Haddon at the CIA, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who once famously said, well, what are we going to do, ask him to give it back? I mean, they all, they all knew the Israelis took this material. They left a real mess behind in Apollo, Pennsylvania. It's still the site of a Superfund cleanup. It's continually postponed because they keep finding rare materials at the various production sites around the town. It's a pretty town. I visited there. I gave a talk on a book that I wrote there. People are very interested in it. But, you know, it's not like uh, they could make any money off it. They can't have, like, the equivalent of the Mothman Museum down at Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I mean, they can't have the Israelis polluted our environs and stole this uranium. I mean, there's no tourism value to that. So it's a really tragic story, and it's it's not really well reported. Um, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette picks up on it once in a while. They used to be very interested in the Israeli angle, but... As time has passed, they become less interested. But, you know, the CIA and, uh, you know, counterintelligence world really saw this as an Israeli operation. The FBI had an eyewitness uh, who was willing to testify, who saw Zalman Shapiro loading uh, HEU canisters into irradiators for sh immediate shipment to Israel. They had um, all of the Israeli spies down cold because they used their real names to visit the plant, but they claimed they were engineers, which they weren't. They could have easily have prosecuted uh, uh, the Israelis and the plant officials, including Zalman Shapiro, who the FBI very dearly wanted to indict, but they always received protection from higher up, the Atomic Energy Commission, which was a very... Uh, bloated and ineffective organization when it came to materials security, uh, you know, was, was fighting the whole thing. They didn't want to be embarrassed by it. Uh, Glenn Seaborg, the Atomic Energy Commission top official, was lobbied by Feinberg. There's this picture, both of them at 
a hotel event where he's lauding, you know, Adams for peace. And yet he's sitting next to the guy who was putting together the Wiseman Institute to build atomic weapons. And it's all just very uh, farcical when you look at it in, in historic context. But none of this information ever really breaks out during key discussions. I mean, you well, why see- do you think that is? I mean, it, it, is it just is it I, I mean, because I don't want listeners to think it's all just like some singular conspiracy, but it does sound like there's a lot of politics involved. There are a lot of politics, and that's why I think it's so important to understand uh, APAC as an extremely successful Israel influence operation in the United States. It comes out of Israel. Uh, It was launched at Israel's behest. Uh, As APAC's founder said, there are only two reasons for the existence of this organization. It's because Israel needs arms and money from the United States. So, you know, this is a uh, this is a vast and extremely long running effort in the United States to support Israel in these two domains. And to the extent that politicians get in any way sideways against that, whether you're Andy Levin making extremely mild demands for better treatment of Palestinian prisoners, whether you're Betty McCollum uh, trying to put in legislation to that effect, all of this would harm arms or money to Israel. And so APAC takes that very seriously. If you want to know what APAC is going to do, all you have to imagine is what would the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs do? What if the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs had a say in this? Uh, My argument is they do. I mean, they may or may not issue directives to APAC today, but that's certainly where APAC came from. So, uh, you know, this this has been uh, gradually building. Uh, there's an Obama administration administrative director directive called WNP 136, which says that U.S. officials and contractors can never, ever say anything about the Israeli nuclear weapons program upon fa- pain of being fired, fined and imprisoned. Uh, and so you've had you have all these prerogatives building within the U.S. sort of administrative state uh, saying that this, you know, this this relationship is inviolable. And you even have at the national security level. Uh, just directives that one of the United States national security objectives is the uh, continued existence and flourishing of Israel. And when you have that as kind of U.S. national security priority, uh, then everything else pretty much flows from that. Um, Why isn't there more investigative journalism about this? Well, there's just no future in it. I mean, if you're a reporter um, and you're uncovering and digging this stuff up, you're going to find pretty soon that if you ever did have good uh, relations and ongoing appearances on major networks, that those are going to wither away. Our mutual uh, friend or acquaintance, uh, Philip Weiss. Right, right. He was over at The Observer, very prominent, well-distributed, well-paid, and he had to leave. And, uh, you know, the, the New York Observer, though, I mean, look at Carl Cameron at Fox News. He uncovered a big Israeli spy operation that was engaged in all sorts of 
art sales and weird stuff going on at U.S. government installations. Well, uh, he didn't get fired, but he wasn't able to ever follow up on any of that. So it's, uh, you know, and the other thing is secrecy. Um, you know, it takes a real intense effort to get U.S. government documents. It's it's expensive. It takes years. And, you know, you can say that even during the heyday of classified advertising supported U.S. investigative journalism, nobody was really digging into this stuff. That's why there's so much of it there that we've been able to get over the last 20 years because nobody ever went after it. Um, I think you see hints of it once in a while at certain journalists. I know uh, Seymour Hirsch, I think, in his book on Kennedy sort of gets into Israel a little bit, but you guys are sort of collating everything together. Yeah. I mean, some people ask why we're so focused on it, and I, I, I respond, it's because nobody else is, and it's very important. I mean, you can say anything you want, but APAC and Israel are extremely fundamental to all U.S. Middle East policy. And if you don't devote considerable effort to understanding its history and what's going on right now, you're not going to ever really understand U.S. Middle East policy. Real quick, uh, just two more things, if you have time. Um, the first is, since we mentioned Farah, um, you know, I think a lot of people in the U.S. aren't even aware of what Farah is or they haven't thought about it. How do you sort of give people the, the basic overview of what FARA is? Like, like if you were introducing the subject to a newcomer. Yeah. Well, I would say FARA is a 1938 law that was designed to ensure that people acting on behalf of foreign governments, uh, whether it was Dominican Republic and Anastasio Somoza or the Nazis in Germany or AMTORG, the Soviet Union's economic division or their literary society, that the Justice Department and Congress felt it was extremely important that you disclose that you are, in fact, working on behalf of a foreign power and you're not just some guy out there or some gal who has a specialty and interest in propagating information that benefits these foreign entities. And so they passed it in 1938. It was under the auspices of the State Department, which is not a law enforcement agency, but has an interest in understanding non-diplomatic foreign representatives. They passed it off to the Justice Department. And ever since it was put in place and they got their first 300 or so registrants, it's really had an up and down history uh, to the extent where now it's primarily used as a cudgel against out-of-favor countries or U.S. target countries. I mean, we just had this news that uh, some Iranian who was going to assassinate John Bolton, you know, he'll surely, surely be charged as an Iranian foreign agent. Um, you know, Venezuelans are routinely picked up. Uh, but since 1962... You know, I haven't seen any Israelis, no matter what they're doing, being charged with violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So it's a very politicized office now. I think they understand that. Sarah did at one point sort of want to register. It did. Yeah. No, they issued an order on November 22, 1967, right at the top organization, the American Zionist Council and their foreign funder, the Jewish Agency American section, and said, you guys are violating FARA. There's an internal debate about whether to criminally prosecute them. 
And, you know, we got the entire documents and it's it's going to be excruciating for listeners of our 10th podcast because we basically go through the internal dialogue at the Justice Department and all of the quibbling and, oh, do we send in the FBI? These guys are so obviously violating the law. They want us to hide all this stuff. They say we're going to kill the Zionist movement, blah, blah, blah. But there was a point in time where Farah meant something and it was somewhat... Uh, it was somewhat equally enforced. It didn't really matter whether, uh, with some exceptions during World War II, they didn't. They weren't quite so strict with the Brits. Uh, but you know, if you were lobbying on behalf of, you know, again, Anastasio Somoza or other Caribbean uh, figures, you would be forced to register. And if you were, even if you were friends of Jacqueline Kennedy. Uh, and had a PR agency, you couldn't just truck in hundreds of thousands of dollars to bolster the image of this or that tin pot dictator. So it used to work pretty well. It doesn't seem to work very well anymore. Uh, you know, you've had names like Paul Manafort and uh, some lobbyists for Lebanese interests who just seem to be able to kind of uh, transcend all of their FARA problems. And it's oftentimes seen as a purely sort of political move to have the FARA division, which is pretty weak. Um, you know, they issue a lot of letters and they call meetings with people, but I've been in that office. It's not impressive. And the people who work there are similarly not empowered. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's become something of a joke and you'll never see it uh, being used to sort of expose and roll up major, major, uh, power operations in the U.S. I, and, you know, it's been replicated around the world. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was the news that the Russians, who also have a Foreign Agents Registration Act, uh, were going after the Jewish agency operations in their country. Uh, in their country, the Jewish agency is a very active recruiter of uh, Jewish uh Russians who want to go to Israel, um, they're very valuable to Israel as scientists and experts and uh, all sorts of things. And the Russians have recently moved to make them register as a foreign agent, which the U.S. did in 1938, and shut down. So, you know, Foreign Agents Registration Act laws are kind of present in other countries now. Other countries have also seen it as something that would be beneficial, but then it's kind of similarly being misused around the world, it gradually devolves into kind of a political tool. And in Russia's case, it's being seen as a way for the Russians to beat up Israel for supporting the Ukrainians in that conflagration. So um, it, it, it it's, a, it's a very interesting saga. We see it as an important and key uh, defining and explanatory uh, event in APAX formation. Uh, we're going to continue to publicize this podcast, How Israel Made APAC, because this is the story that nobody's telling, and we're happy to be the single source for that. Real, real quick, too, uh, because I, I'd mentioned it very briefly at the beginning, but uh, yeah. the series, the podcast you're doing, has been praised by Alan C. Brownfeld who edits the Quarterly Journal of the American Council for Judaism. Yeah. And uh, I believe there's a figure that ties into this um, uh, that, that sort of led the efforts uh, for APAC to be registered under FARA. In addition to Senator Fulbright, there's also Rabbi uh, Elmer Berger, who was yes. also of the American Council for Judaism, right? Yes. Yeah. 
Elmer Berger was was extremely important. They were, you know, he was hand in hand with Lessing Rosenwald in 1944 uh, as the anti-Zionist presence in Congress saying that, you know, this lobby and Isaiah Kennan and Abe Feinberg uh, do not speak for us. Uh, we represent a religion in the United States. We're not a nation. We're Americans. We're not Israelis. Uh, and, you know, Emmanuel Seller from New York, this congressman, you know, basically <laughs> told him in the elevator of the House office building, they ought to take you bastards out and shoot you because their message was 100% in the opposite direction of what the Zionist movement was asking of Congress. And they were amazingly successful for a long time. They had the law on their side. Uh, I think to a certain extent, they had uh, uh, justice for Palestinians on their side. They were also very conscious that there was already a population in Palestine. Uh, but, you know, they lost. The American Council for Judaism is still around, uh, but it's more of a shadow of its former self. They have an excellent newsletter. They still have speakers. They're still around in Washington and other places, but they lost. In closing here, I, I I think this is an important podcast series you're doing. And for me, I don't think this should be looked at as like simply a left or right wing issue. You know, right. I think, you know, there may be things that I, I like about Isaiah Kennan. I thought it was interesting that he fought for labor rights. Um, I think yep. there may be more right wing people that would dislike that about him, but they would like his pro-Israel sort of uh, approach. So how do you sort of get around the whole left-right divide uh, when it comes to talking about Israel? Because I think it, th this is an important issue regardless of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah, well, I work for a nonpartisan organization. We're not set up to boost the Dems or the Republicans or conservatives or liberals. We're here to try and explain what's going on because both sides, uh, both of the sides you tend to mention, uh, have their favorite lore and stories and backstories, but they're oftentimes far from the truth. So, you know, I don't have any trouble saying that Zalman Shapiro was a brilliant chemist who, you know, without him, there would be no nuclear Navy. I don't have a problem saying that Isaiah Kennan was an extremely effective activist and that maybe uh, there are some lessons to be learned from what he did and the things he thought were not effective and what he thought was effective. So what we're trying to do more than anything is tell a story. Um, and I think that's why I don't really have any trouble uh, telling this story to any audience. And I'm happy to go on to most shows <laughs> and tell it. Um, what I don't like, though, is when I'm reading stories in you know, The Intercept or uh, the Nation magazine saying that, oh, APAC is going after progressives and you know, hearing Robert Reich saying, oh, this is just a big effort. Uh, and this is why corporate interests in politics is so bad, because those are very superficial takes on what's actually happening. They're sort of ahistoric. They don't make any sense if you look at what APAC's objectives have been since uh, for a long while back. And, you know, uh, when a Thomas Massey comes out and says, oh, hey, you know, I don't want to fund Iron Dome. That's something the Israelis can do from that perspective. Uh, and then when APAC attacks him, he says, oh, this is a foreign influence attacking me. Uh, I would tweet out, yes, you're exactly right, because look at APAC's history. Uh, so I just think the most important thing 
is to inject the truth into these debates using social media to the extent possible. And I think anyone who reads through this exhaustive or listens to this exhaustive podcast and then at the end looks at the documents is going to see an amazing story and maybe come away with a different perspective about what's going on right now. And, and I believe you're also coming out with, uh, you're republishing one of your uh, older books. I don't know if you want to tell listeners about that. Yeah, so America's Defense Line, which is a little take on Kennan's book called Israel's Defense Line, is coming out at the ends with all new uh, front end and back end and some new content that we've gotten since it was originally published. Um, all the exhibits, all of the documents, the key documents we got uh, from the Justice Department, all the quotes of Kennan and other key items coming out at the end of the podcast series as kind of a way of saying, you know what, this wasn't just a podcast of uh, some guy telling the story of the Skinwalker Ranch. There are actually documents underlying all of this. I, I like a, how you're making reference to this Skinwalker Ranch <laughs> and Mothman. And <laughs> well, there's so much stuff out there that's so <laughs> popular, and I want this to be popular, too. And it's it's as exciting as the Mothman and Skinwalker Ranch. So, Except that it, it actually has more impact on Americans' lives today than any of those things do. Well, thank you again, Grant F. Smith. Uh, for coming on Parallax Views. All right. Thanks for having me. Next up, a brief bonus segment with Antiwar.com's Dave DeCamp, in which we'll be discussing a recent CBS documentary on the U.S. NATO arming of Ukraine. Said documentary was recently pulled after it sparked outrage from the Ukrainian government. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Dave DeCamp of Antiwar.com. Welcome back to Parallax Views, Dave DeCamp, the intrepid newswire of Antiwar.com. How are you doing, Dave? Um, good, JG. Thanks for having me back. It's you on. and uh, uh, Jason Ditz run the Newswire, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we've had incredible uh, resource. Yeah, and Kyle Anzalone, uh, he's our opinion editor. And Kyle's he's writing, great too. Yep. Writing some new stuff, and Connor Freeman. They, those guys work at the Libertarian Institute too, and we've been, you know, sharing our stuff. So I wanted to have you on the show because I did not know about this until recently. Uh, there's apparently this CBS documentary that came out that dealt with, you know, weapons going to Ukraine from the West. And apparently that ruffled some feathers. So what's the story on that? Yes. Yeah, so this was pretty interesting to see. CBS, they put out this documentary called Arming Ukraine uh, this past Sunday. And it didn't last very long. Um, it quoted a somebody that runs an NGO called Blue and Yellow, Blue Yellow, that helps get military aid to Ukraine. It's a Lithuania-based organization. And this was back in April that CBS was with him. And he estimated that only 30 to 40% of the aid was reaching its final destination, as he put it. And you saw that in the trailer. And they put an article up to release the documentary. And this really angered the Ukrainian government. And it looks like their pressure caused CBS to pull the documentary down that same day. Uh, it was pretty quick. It wasn't up very long. Um, and, th and they put out an editor's note that said that they're updating the documentary. And they, they said the same guy who 
said estimated 30 to 40% was reaching the front line back in April. He said, Oh, things are much better now, but you know, they didn't give, this he didn't give guy, a new um, estimate. This is Jonas Omen, the, the founder of blue and yellow, right? Said that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and this is really the first time we've seen something like this. I mean, it's August and they've been shipping billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine since the end of February. And we haven't really seen any critical reporting on it from, you know, the mainstream media in the West, at least. And so it was just interesting to see this go up and then immediately get taken down. And then we saw Ukraine's foreign minister after it was taken down. He said, uh, Dimitro uh, Kuleba. Yeah. Yes. He said, this is good, but this isn't enough. He, he wants a, an investigation into how the documentary was released. Um, and so it's just really something to see how much power the Ukrainian government has over our media as we're, we're sending them all this military aid, but they don't want us to be critical of them at all. And what was kind of telling in the documentary too. So I link, if you look at this article on antiwar.com, I link to the full video. Somebody put it up on BitChute and Jason Ditz actually put it on his YouTube channel. So you could find it on YouTube for however long it'll be up there, <laughs> but it's the original documentary and it's good. Um, but what was really telling in it was that there was this other guy who started the Mozart group. And that is a organization nonprofit that helps get military aid to Ukraine. He's an American, former US Marine. And in the documentary, he says, oh yeah, there's gonna be waste, who cares? It doesn't matter, who cares where these weapons end up? We just have to keep sending them as many weapons as we can. Of course, there's gonna be issues like this. And I think that view is like, you know, the prevailing view probably in Washington, just because we haven't seen any concern about oversight or where exactly this aid is going, we really don't. No. And I mentioned a CNN report. This was also back in April. They quoted a U.S. official, you know, anonymous sources basically saying that the U.S. had no way to track these weapons. And they described it like dumping it into a big black hole. Yeah. And um, I, I think that was CNN that reported on that. They were talking about intelligence. U.S. intelligence mm -hmm. uh, officials were saying that. Yeah. Yeah. So there was actually, I guess, some critical reporting of this, but very, very minimal. Um, so it's just something though how the the reaction it gets it really goes to show how they don't want this kind of critical reporting out there was there anything else that stood out to you in in the documentary and uh I, i'm glad that uh jason ditz is uh posted up on youtube and i know um eric garris made a blog post about it on antiwar.com so was there anything else in that documentary that you uh would recommend people really keeping an eye out for when they watch it yeah, I mean, it's it has follows a CBS reporter who is with these people trying to get military aid to the front line. It's pretty short. It's only like 23 minutes, I think. Um, he also interviews yeah, it's, some it's like it has to be. I mean, it's less than half an hour, maybe 28 minutes at most. I don't even know. But yeah, yeah, it's short. It's quick. <laughs> um, and he also interviews somebody from Amnesty International who says that there's no way to track the weapons. Um. But yeah, I mean, it's mostly, it's just that, just really saying how hard it is to get these weapons to the front lines, which isn't a surprise. I mean, even if you don't have to really necessarily think it's something nefarious, like they're all going to the black market, that it is just trying to get the amount of weapons that they're sending to the front lines in Eastern Ukraine when the U.S. isn't in the country. And, uh, and you know, the solution 
that a lot of people want is to send U.S. military advisors to Ukraine. But that's, you know, that's how U.S. involvement in Vietnam started. That's just such a would be such an escalation of the U.S. role. Um, but it definitely shows how I think irresponsible it is to just flood a, a country with weapons um, and not put any effort into diplomacy to end the war, which is what the Biden administration has done. And, you know, down the line, you see the consequences of, you know, the U.S. backing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. What are the consequences going to be of this? We know that there are extremist elements of Ukraine's military. The um, Azov Battalion is kind of the most infamous one that were uh, you know, they were called a neo-Nazi militia by the Western media until Russia invaded Ukraine. Then they kind of started downplaying that. Um, but we'll see. This will all come back around. I mean, as the years go on and we look back, we reflect on this policy, we're going to really learn uh, some more things about it. I think one really important thing to talk about here before we start wrapping up is, um, you know, I, I think regardless of where people come down on this issue of uh, should the U.S. be more supporting Ukraine or not, or what should the U.S. role be? And regardless of where we come down on any of this when it comes to Ukraine, or just just generally, like how people feel about Putin, how people feel about Zelensky, putting all that aside, I don't think it should be a problem to ask about the logistics of how these weapons are being, you know, taken into Ukraine and what hands they're ending up in. I think regardless of, of uh, what you think about any aspect of the war, it doesn't seem like this is like about being anti-Ukraine or pro-Ukraine or pro-Russia or anti. It's just a question of what are the logistics of this and how can we make sure that these arms aren't getting into the wrong hands? It seems like a reasonable thing to report on. It doesn't seem like it's even necessarily something that you have to politicize as um, how do I put this? Like I, I'm kind of shocked by the the the, the Ukrainian response to it, mm. where the Ukrainian government is saying, "Oh, this this is bad PR," because I I don't know. It just seems like a, a reasonable thing to report on that isn't even necessarily anti-Ukrainian. I think it says a lot that they don't even want the West, you know, looking into these logistics. Even if you're pro-arming Ukraine, like you said, you would think that they would want to know that the weapons are getting where they're supposed to go. That's the whole idea here is to help them fight against Russia. Um, and if there's that much uh, leakage, as they call it, then it's something that they would want to address. Um, and, you know, they could have came out and said, yeah, it was it wasn't it was a little shaky at first, but things have gotten a lot better or something like that. But instead, we saw this reaction and they got it taken down. And it goes to show, I mean, they recently the Ukrainian government recently published like a blacklist of what they called Russian propagandists, but they were really just American and other Western foreign policy experts that um, just kind of are either against U.S. and NATO involvement in the war. Or if I, they... I was going to say real quick, not to interrupt you, but mm -hmm. it sounds like that Ukrainian foreign minister, when, when he said uh, there should be an internal investigation into who enabled this documentary and why, it's almost I get the impression he's implying he's like, oh, there's some kind of Kremlin mole inside mm -hmm. CBS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. And then what's the implication there? What do you want CBS to do? Do you want the U.S. government to get involved? Because um, we've seen kind of a crackdown on their media since the war 
started uh, with Zelensky really banning any media that's not state run and uh, banning opposition parties and stuff. So they're trying to control the narrative and, you know, they don't like to see stuff like this. And again, that blacklist, like they put um, some people on this list, they put a few antiwar.com columnists on there too. Doug Bandow and Ray McGovern were on there. And we don't know Doug what is that. All, that's, that's wild. Because yeah. Doug is pretty even kill. He's very even killed. Yeah. So I think that says a lot um, about how they just don't want anybody questioning anything. Um, so, but yeah, it's, you know, you wonder what exactly they want, what do they want to happen to these guys that they put on this list? What do they want to happen to CBS, to that reporter? What do you think the biggest implications of this whole story, you know, not, not just the, the CBS story, but also the, the Ukrainian government's reaction to it. What, what, what do you want listeners to get out of the conversation we've been having here? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, we have to question, uh, regardless of how you feel about the war, um, you have to understand, you know, this is the side that your government is funding and we have to be critical of them. And if they're not allowing that criticism, then it just, it's telling us a lot and that, um, you know, this policy could really come back to bite us a few years down the line. Uh, I would guess that it, that it definitely will, especially as this war, there's just no end in sight. I mean, the U.S. and NATO keep saying that they're going to keep supporting Ukraine until they beat Russia. But to do that, I mean, it would just take such a huge military offensive. Um, and, you know, it could turn into a very destabilized country and with all these weapons and arms on the border with Russia, the largest nuclear power in the world. It's just such a dangerous uh, thing that we're doing here. Do you think this also, I mean, maybe I'm cynical, so maybe I don't necessarily feel this way because I, I think things are bad enough with it already, but do you, do you think this sets a bad precedent uh, for the U.S. press? You know, because now it, it, it seems like CBS is muzzling itself um, after being criticized. Uh, but I mean... I, I guess you could argue the U.S. press does that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely set, setting a bad precedent. Um, but it seemed, you know, for the most part, the mainstream, I mean, it's gotten so bad, you know, since the Iraq war, you think there was, seemed like there was more dissent then that the mainstream, it's really, they're all just kind of fell in line to totally support Ukraine and not question anything. Um, and then when you see something like this, maybe it'll wake some people up, actually. Maybe it could have a positive <laughs> impact, um, especially if you worked on that documentary and you put it out and, and you see them just cave so quickly to the Ukrainian government. It's very, it's very strange. Two more things there. Um, just with all the news you've been uh, covering uh, lately, where do you see things headed with regards to U.S. policy in regards to Ukraine, where do you see the whole conflict going from here? I mean, I, not that I want you to be like the soothsayer, but how would you sum up what's going on right now? Um, I mean, my guess is that this is what we're seeing right now. Um, you know, the war's kind of come to a bit of a standstill. There's not Russia's not really on the offensive right now, it doesn't seem like. But I think that the kind of the state that we're in right now with Russia controls, um, you know, most of the Donbass region in the east and the oblast, the province, Kherson, which is north of Crimea, and Zaporizhia, which is east. So that connects Crimea to the Donbass and to Russia. I think that's going to be what Russia controls for a while now. And 
Um, they're probably preparing for a bigger offensive. Ukraine says that they're preparing for one. Uh, and I just think that it's going to kind of be not, not a stalemate, but I think the lines that we're at right now, it's going to be there for a while. And there's just really no end in sight. I think that the war is going to really drag on for a long, long time for a few years, at least. And I think in some ways, I, I don't want people to underestimate just how dangerous the moment is, because I mean, mm -hmm. if one thing goes wrong with Western support of Ukraine, I, I mean, just I, I can imagine scenarios where this becomes an even bigger conflict. Not, yeah. not, not, I'm, I'm not necessarily implying that this is like the start of World War III, but, you know, one false move could trigger, you know, a series of chain reaction events where, you know, Russia retaliates against uh, NATO for something, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's the, that's what we're dealing with. That's like the level of the risk that we're taking by funding this war on Russia's border. Is... I mean, what I'm saying is it's, it's, I feel like we're two minutes to midnight and it's almost mm -hmm. like a, it's like yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> it is, except they're not talking. <laughs> the U.S. and Russia don't barely have any communication. And we just saw Antony Blinken. He spoke with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. But it wasn't even about the war. It was about um, trying to get Brittany Griner and this other American, John Whalen, that's been in, in, in Russia. And they didn't even discuss. And he said before the call that, oh, this isn't going to be a negotiation about Ukraine. So it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis if the U.S. and Russia weren't talking. And it is it's very dangerous. And we've seen, you know, we saw a exp big explosion in Crimea. There's actually reports of an explosion in Belarus that you, some Ukrainian officials hinted Ukraine might have been behind. And I mean, that that could really make this war much bigger. We're really just relying on, you know, you think about the Western narrative that Putin is just this reckless madman by supporting Ukraine with all these weapons, by giving them intelligence and bragging that you're giving them intelligence to help them kill Russians. We're just relying on Putin not taking it to that next level, to not responding. Um, you know, what if they, they attack, you know, a NATO arms warehouse in Poland or something on NATO territory, then what? then what's the escalation going to be from NATO? Um, so we're just risking a lot with this and it's very dangerous and uh, it's just total madness and it, and it should stop. I have to say my mind is still blown that, that apparently Doug Bondow has been blacklisted. <laughs> yeah. No, because Doug, Doug uh, I was just going to say this real quickly. That really surprises me because every time I've talked to Doug, I think he has a lot of sympathy uh, for Ukrainians. I mean, I, I think he sort of feels like they've been invaded, that they're, you know, fighting back. I mean, I don't, he doesn't have like some, he's not like a giant Putin lover or anything. Yeah, no, so, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. That that's wild to hear that. I didn't even realize that, but um, before you go, uh, you have a, a new sort of a podcast project at antiwar.com. Could you uh, tell my listeners about that? Yeah, so I just started it a few weeks ago. It's an idea that I've had for a while um, because I write, you know, I read the news all day and then I write uh, a pretty good amount of articles each day. So it's basically just a summary of, you know, the top foreign policy news stories of the day from our anti-war non-interventionist perspective. You know, that's the news coverage that we give. And uh, so it comes out five days a week. I record it. Um, you know, for each weekday morning, Monday through Friday, um, you could download it 
wherever you listen to podcasts. There's also a video on YouTube and Odyssey if people want to check that out. But yeah, I think it's a pretty good resource. They're 20 minute short little episodes. And if you just want to follow foreign policy news, it's a good it's a good way to do it. I was going to say real quick, I know you say that the, the newswire that you and Jason do, it does come from that anti-interventionist uh, perspective, maybe a little bit of a, a libertarian perspective. But I mean, for me, I, I think there is a clear difference between, I think there's delineation between anti-wars op-eds, which you openly call op-eds, and then the news section. Like you, you're not editorializing in the news reports that you do. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And I think it's I think antiwar.com, I've told you this before, it's a really useful website just for keeping track of what's happening. And maybe there is a little bit of perspective in there um, in like what you're covering and, and maybe what you're focusing on. But, you know, mm. the, the actual uh, articles that you and Jason come out with, it's not like an editorialized article that you're writing every day. Yeah. And we do, you know, our bias is in our name. So it's not like it's pretty clear where we're coming from. Um, and, you know, sometimes when it's warranted, like I do editorialize it a little bit, you know, certain things, especially like Iran. And when you're talking about Iran and Israel, you know, the context is just always left out that Israel has a secret nuclear weapons program and Iran doesn't. So sometimes, you know, it takes some liberties with stories about Iran and, and Israel, um, but really, you're, you're you, not giving yourself enough credit, though. Antiwar.com's <laughs> newswire. No, it really is a useful resource. Yeah, that's regardless good of what your thoughts are on foreign policy, like mm -hmm. I think anyone can read the newswire and keep up with what's going on in Africa, what's going on. It, it's very useful in terms of mm -hmm. um, just foreign affairs, uh, yeah. regardless of where you land on the political spectrum. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, because one thing that we do that I think is good is, you know, we'll see something on Reuters that on their newswire and it's just like two sentences, but it's a very important story and it doesn't really get picked up anywhere else. So we'll kind of put those like Somalia was just bombed by the U S the other day. And I didn't really see it anywhere. I just used the press release from U S Africa command. So that's just a war. Nobody really seems to care about. Um, so that's at the top of the page today, stuff like that. Well, thank you again, Dave DeCamp. And I hope people will check out uh, the anti-war news podcast, which you can find, I think it's at the upper right-hand corner of antiwar.com. And uh, I'm glad you're doing that daily. It's a great addition uh, to the newswire you guys have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I hope people check it out. And thanks for having me again, JG. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with antiwar.com's Dave DeCamp and Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy. Be sure to check out Grant's new podcast, How Israel Made APAC. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views.
the way out is not simply to say, don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.